I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Um, well, this is going to be great. Uh, it's, I feel like it's been a while since we've had a conversation like the one that we're going to have today. We're going to be diving into the, uh, the world of being a caretaker, uh, something that we've, we've touched on before. And, uh, and, you know, for folks that are maybe new to the podcast, um, the life as a caretaker uh, is, is, is definitely uh, it's definitely an important role in a lot of people's lives. It's definitely a role that uh, comes with a host full of challenges. Um, you know, I'm thinking back to the days where my parents were my primary caretakers when you know when I was struggling with cystic fibrosis, or times where um, where uh, Bridie stepped up and was you know acting as a caretaker. And uh, it's it's one of those things that uh, they're, they're like the unsung heroes of our of our uh, uh, of our uh, society. Um, and this week we're, we're sitting down with our new friend, Terrence, uh, who Terrence, I mean, you, you've kind of made a life of being a caretaker. Um, why don't you, uh, first of all, introduce yourself to our listeners, give us a little bit of insight into who Terrence is and, uh, how did you find yourself to become a caretaker for, for some members of your family? Sure. Well, my name is Terrence Ho and I'm based in Toronto. Originally, uh, uh, born in Hong Kong, um, and at a at a young age, um, having a younger brother that was diagnosed with Duchenne muscular dystrophy, uh, upon his diagnosis, essentially I became a, a caregiver, like a mm. sibling caregiver. Even mm. though at that age I didn't know what that meant, mm. but at that early age I was already sort of given that role mm-hmm. uh, without any direction. Really, it's just oh, your your brother's diagnosed please help take care of him. Right. Um, so at an early age, I was given that role and yeah, it's been, my brother now is 35. So yeah, I've been in this kind of caregiver role as a sibling caregiver and advocate for like, I would say almost 30 years of my life. Now I take it your brother's a younger brother. Yes, correct. Okay. Um, and, uh, what, you know, how, what was that? What was that process like? You know, like becoming a caregiver at such a young age was that um, was that was that the a sort of case where your brother was born? I take it um, uh, Duchenne's muscular dystrophy uh, is something that is pretty pretty obvious, like early on in in someone's life. Um, uh, how old were you when 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 this became a reality for you? And and. D- were you were you at an age where like you can remember what the conversations were like with your parents about like what this might mean for you as an older brother? So my brother was diagnosed uh, when he was six, and so I was ten years old at that time. Six years old. Oh wow. Okay. Wow. Yeah. So his symptoms started come showing up probably around like four or five years old. Oh. Um, and then he was officially diagnosed at six, and so at that time I was ten and really. With my parents and given that uh, coming from a Chinese family where um, like disability and things like even like mental health is kind of frowned upon. So it's kept Mm. like hush hush because there's a lot of shame and guilt around it. We didn't really talk much about it. So Mm. it's kind of funny when my brother was diagnosed the same year, actually like broke his leg in a bike accident. So for actually a couple of years, I thought it was my fault that he got his diagnosis because no one explained to me what like muscular dystrophy was or what he got. Yeah. Mm. So a couple of years I was like in, in this like shame and guilt of feeling like, did I cause this to my brother? Because I 
I like broke his leg. <laughs> oh, so, you um, didn't wait, know, so did you, you did didn't, you cause his bike accident? Yeah, did you push him <laughs> off the bike? What happened? No, like our, our bikes collided and oh, broke his uh, leg. Oh, oh no. sh- yeah. so you didn't know. Ab- no, you didn't know that it was that you didn't know when he got diagnosed that he was diagnosed. Like yeah. you, you like it was just something that you know because of the family dynamics and the cultural influences and stuff. It just wasn't something that was explained to you. No, it wasn't. Wow. Um, and. And yeah, the, the wild thing is too, uh, this is something that ran in our family. So two of our uncles who we never met uh, also lived with Duchenne and they died um, in their early 20s. Uh, so it was definitely something that our family knew about, but no one talked about it. Mm-hmm. So then when my brother got diagnosed, I think the adults talked about it amongst themselves, but then never mm-hmm. really like discussed it with, with like, say me as a brother Right. And with anyone else, really. So in terms of like the the like sort of supports and like and like early care that you were giving for your brother, like what what did that look like? Even for the first two years that you you didn't really you didn't know it was Duchenne's, but you were uh, I'm assuming that you were involved in helping out in some way. Like, what did that look like? So it'd be something as simple as, oh, like walking your brother to school. So my mom would be like, oh, you know, walk your brother to school. He's It's going to take some time because he. He already starts like slowly, like his walking start to slow down. So mm-hmm. it's like, oh, make sure your brother's safe at school. So really as a big brother, just making sure that he's like looked after. Mm-hmm. Um, so that would be one thing. And then the other things would be more like accompany my mom and my brother to like all his hospital appointments and doctor's appointments and like that kind of stuff. Um, but at such a young age, I didn't really know what was going on. So even as a sibling caregiver, I struggled a lot myself mm-hmm. because all the attention went to my brother. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And I'm, and I then imagine- so, yeah, go ahead. Oh, yeah, sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> um, so I, I just had to kind of grapple with like, why does my brother get all this attention and not me? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And especially because it wasn't, it wasn't explained to you too. Why, like why he was getting this extra attention. Correct. So yeah. it was a big struggle um, growing up as a sibling caregiver um, but recognizing that um, I care about my brother, uh, that whatever my parents, or at least my mom, because at that time, my parents were going through their divorce as well. So uh, that I'm going to be there to support my mom and my brother. Mm-hmm. And and a lot of family, even like culturally, they would tell me, it's like, oh, as the older brother, make sure to take care of your family. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So already at a young age, I was already kind of like programmed to kind yeah. of like think like this. Um, yeah. Something that we, uh, something that we hear a ton um, from, from people like somebody who's in a similar sort of experience like Jeremy's had where they've had an illness um, or, mm-hmm. or something that they've dealt with since before they can remember. Um, it, you know, we, we might ask somebody, you know, who's had, uh, you know, who, who maybe they were born with, um, they were born uh, with like their right leg, uh, amputated below the knee or at the, whatever it might be. And we'll say, well, how do you do this? And they would go, well, I just do it the way that I've always done it. And it's actually not like compelling or, or that crazy for them. Cause they're like, well, it's just, the, it's what I've always known. And it's, and I think for us looking at somebody with maybe one and a half legs, we go, wow, that's crazy. How do you, how, how can you look at that that way? Mm. But they just go, well, that's just my, that's just my life. And I've, and since we started talking, I've kind of thought in the same sort of realm uh, with you as, you know, did you ever, ha- did you ever have this moment of like, I'm a caregiver or was it just, this is my, you know, since you were 10 years old, you just were in this role. This is like, this is your existence. This is just built into you. It's not an add on to your life. It feels like it's just part of your, of you. Yeah. Like very much so. So my lens is now like, this identity and lens I have is of this like caregiving lens. Um, but it's also one that I struggle with too, mm. because, because this caregiver role has been kind of like given to me at such a young age. Sometimes I struggle with this identity of like, is this who I am only? Mm. And <clears throat> yeah, go ahead. Yeah, totally. I was just, I was just gonna say like that. That's I, I just came out of uh, therapy before um, recording this podcast. Actually, we recorded one before this, but but I was having the same conversation about like identity from your childhood, and also one thing that you said to me that really resonated was that like what other people put onto you. So like family members or like 
in True. in your community people saying like oh it's your responsibility to help out and they're actually it's not the intended you know, they're not their their intent is not that like this weight is put onto your shoulders but it it is on your shoulders and um i really struggle with like removing like personally the even even in the workplace when you know somebody rewards you for working long hours or like mm-hmm. doing a good job on something they're like that's so great that you did that but really it's hard then it's hard to like separate your own personal needs from that reward or feeling of mm-hmm. like like helping out and so it's often a, this and this feeling is embedded in a lot of like the idea of like self-sacrifice or self selflessness. So uh, when I was thinking of like you doing this for your family and for your brother, um, you know, there's some there is some aspect of that it, that is like sort of fulfilling and there's a purpose behind that. And, sure. you know, you're helping your family, but also, you know, you also have to under, understand the importance of your own personal needs and your own personal identity. Um, what has that like realization or like sort of struggle been like for you? Oh, wow. Uh, it, it has been a big struggle growing up. And <clears throat> I'd say even to this day, mm-hmm. uh, there is this like identity struggle. And, you know, listening to some of your episodes around like mental health and and, and uh, depression and stuff. Yeah. Like to me, growing up, I've experienced all those things. And I would really think that um, like at least over the, especially over the past year, getting professional help mm. like has been tremendously valuable. Mm-hmm. Uh, so like, because in the last year and a half, I was caring for our mom as well, who died of stage four lung cancer um, and receiving grief counseling, psychotherapy, uh, getting like bereavement support, um, mm. has been tremendously valuable and even being able to talk through the whole experience of caring and then the next level of like caring for someone who's dying mm. um so i would say in the last year year and a half that's been valuable and then previous to that has been more like more informal support that i've been receiving mm. in helping me like work through some of these like kind of like identity crises that mm-hmm. i would experience um to- to come back to like Taylor's point that he was making earlier about, about like that, like being the only thing that, that you know, I mean like the lens that you, as you refer to the lens that you see the world through, like when did that start to, when did this idea that like that doesn't have to be the only lens that you experience your relationships and your family through, like when did that first start to, that idea start to creep into your mind? Uh, I would say probably around like university. Um, just because, well, even though I was a commuter student going back and forth, uh, like back home and into university, but I think in university, because I spent a lot of time in university, uh, like running a business during that time too. So, and then at the same time, struggling with the fact that, ah, I care about my family and my brother. So how do I like make time for them too? But then realizing, actually, I do have a lot of my personal interests and, Mm -hmm. uh, like dreams that I have too. Mm-hmm. So I think probably around university was the time where that kind of came to light for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but I still struggled in terms of like pursuing some of those dreams mm. at that age still, because I felt this like responsibility to be there to like support my family. Was that, that must be a big, that must be a big conflict like in for, for you internally in the sense of like, I mean, especially I think if you were pursuing something that's, that's, uh, pursuing something that you want to pursue, like maybe it's the the business that you said you were running, for example, like you're taking time to to do that. And I can see it being very easy to think while you're doing that, to think, well, while I'm doing this, I'm not taking care of, I'm not, I'm not taking care of, of people that might need some support in my family and trying to, you know, reconcile that, that it is that you do need to kind of live, uh, you know, you, you have to have your own, you have to have your own existence, you know, live within the, within the, the realm of, of, of the care that the people in your family mm. uh, need. I, I've got a, I, I find the, uh, the cultural aspect of this very fascinating. Um, mm-hmm. And there's a couple of things that have come up for me that I'm, I'm kind of curious about. And um, 
uh, one of them is is and and maybe that maybe this isn't the case at all, but but I am I am sort of curious as to whether or not this was an experience that you had. But like as it's wild to me to think about um, a ten year old sibling becoming a caregiver at such a young age. And I'm sure that like that is that's kind of like a natural thing that happens regardless of where you're from or what your situation is. Like you're the older brother, you're there to support your younger brother. But in in retrospect, looking back at that age and looking back at taking on that role at that point in your life, do you feel like you were relied on to care for your brother in ways that were um like much greater than what uh, maybe other families would would be kind of relying on their like ten year old child to care for their their brother. Like, did did were you taking on more responsibility than you think maybe, uh, maybe like you were ready to handle at that point in your life? Yeah, like I remember people commenting, maybe not at the age of ten, but a few years later, they'd be like, "I'd be more mature than like people my age, and also more serious too." Mm. Uh, not that it's a good thing to be like serious, uh, re- having read some of all your profiles too. Like, yeah, like at a very young age, I became super serious because I was like, oh, like my, my brother is going through this. My family is, is like going through tough times. So I got to like, kind of yeah. like toughen up and yeah. be there to support my family. So yeah, like, I don't think at that age I was prepared for it in any way. Like no one like again no one like talked to me about it yeah um like i didn't know that there were like sibling like carers like support at that age and my family probably didn't know anything about that either and it wasn't really until later in life maybe in the last like five six years that i really discovered sibling caregiver support yeah yeah Um, yeah yeah. i mean that's that's definitely something that that i would love to touch on because i think um that's one thing that probably a lot of people don't realize that there are like supports out there for caregivers, like outside sure. of just, just, uh, you know, like a pamphlet on teaching you how to fucking support <laughs> someone in your life. Um, uh, but before we get into that, one other thing that I was curious about was, um, at, at what age did you and your family move from, uh, from Hong Kong to, to Canada? And, um, you know, the, the, one of the things that you had mentioned earlier was that, Culturally, uh, there's a lot of shame and a lot of stigma and uh, um, uh, surrounding things like mental health issues or or physical disabilities. And so, when you when you made that move to Canada, um, you know, I know that I know that when you leave your home country, like your culture doesn't change, but but you're finding yourself in a brand new culture. Um, and so, like, was there a shift in the? the mentality surrounding your brother's disability in your family after leaving Hong Kong and coming to Canada where, where the culture is a little bit different when it comes to, to supporting uh, someone or having someone in your family that's struggling with something like a, a disability. So before our family immigrated to Canada, my brother wasn't diagnosed yet. So he was actually diagnosed in Canada. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So we had no idea. Uh, so we were both born in Hong Kong, my brother and I, but then when we immigrated, we were running around, he was running around, we were playing tag, mm. like, yeah, we we're just living life as like normal, quote unquote, normal kids. Um, mm. And so really, I would say it didn't really change in terms of like how our family perceived the disability, because I th- still think that the cultural influence from where I say like my parents and my grandparents grew up in that still came with them. Yeah, of course. Like when they immigrated here, I think the big benefit that I remember speaking with my mom about a lot was how lucky we are to be in Canada. Mm. Because when I hear the stories and look at the photos of both my uncles who lived in Hong Kong, they were because of the, kind of the guilt and shame and lack of opportunities for people with disabilities in Hong Kong, especially back in like the seventies um, is that they didn't get to leave the house. Yeah. Whereas at least my brother living in Canada, not only gets medical support, social support, but he finished college. Uh, he played power wheelchair hockey, like oh, yeah. the, the opportunities that 
like he he got is tremendous and i i really believe that that's probably the reason why my brother is still alive right now just because he has more purpose than mm. say both my uncles mm-hmm. um and so in terms of like opportunity and all that yeah canada is like a huge difference maker and in terms of in terms of your 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 family your parents i, I know you said that they got divorced and and um mm. and we you were saying it before I'm, I'm sorry to hear about your your mother of course that she recently passed away um was was were they was there a sense within them like i mean you you you're obviously you're you're very vocal about 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 uh, about your brother and about caregiving was that something that was that something that 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 they felt like oh we're in canada we're in you're in canada and that is like we feel better about about you doing that was there ever any conflict with being kind of outspoken and vocal about about um you know like familial matters being mm. kind of you know you know some might call it dirty laundry that might be uh, <laughs> and I, I i don't prescribe to it being called that but i think somebody some people would call it that if they felt like it was something that shouldn't be shared um what was the sense there when when you know when you started doing the work that you that you do uh i don't know because i think my mom had been like a big advocate of my brother yeah uh, and she got that from my grandma because my grandma was a huge advocate for my two uncles. And I think that's where my mom got her like advocacy and like determination drive from is from my grandma. So when I started to kind of do this advocacy work for my brother and our friends with disabilities, yeah, like my family didn't really have, or at least my mom didn't really have any like issues with that. Mm-hmm. There may have been some discomfort um, when starting to talk about the mental health challenges that mm. uh, both I face, that my brother has faced as well. Uh, but I think it was something that we needed to discuss as a family mm-hmm. um, because also mental health uh, uh, challenges does also run in our family. So to have been able to kind of put it out there and to have a dialogue around it uh, made people uncomfortable in my family, mm. but it was valuable to be able to like talk about it. Yeah. Um, and these are topics like, like suicide and things like that. So like fascinating uh, yeah. how those, how like mental health stuff, especially because mental health, because a lot of mental health struggles that people have, it's, it is something that can run in a family and yeah. that, that, you know, many generations of a family have dealt with. And sure. like, you know, like you, you can look back, I think, you know, coming from a, um, <clears throat> coming from like an, an Irish Scottish um, heritage, there's definitely like a mum's the word on problems. Like, mm. well, let's just take the problems and leave them under the rug. And, um, and starting to, especially if you are, you be, you start to talk about something that you might be going through that, that older generations of your family have also, uh, have also gone through. I think there can be a feeling of you're talking about me. Like, even though you're talking, you might be talking about the things that you're going through, it might feel to other people like you're talking about them too, because they've gone through that. And maybe they haven't been able to share that because, you know, they're a part of a different generation that there was just not as there, they, they didn't feel like they could talk as openly about that. So I feel like a lot of like people can take that personally when you start talking about mm. something that you're going through because they feel like it's also about them. Yeah, that, that's a good point. Um, and so far from my experience, from even talking about what uh, I'm going through or my brother's experiencing, um, I've been pleasantly surprised in how it opened up some of my family members, like aunts and uncles, to open up to me to tell me like, hey, like, yeah, this did happen in our family and this is how I felt about it. Mm. And this is something that happened like a decade ago that yeah. our family never talked about. So yeah, perhaps sometimes some people may shy away from wanting to talk about it um and so far from my experience it's been kind of like opening and healing to some extent to be able to even hear from my elders that oh wow like this is what you felt when this happened like you're giving them permission to to, yeah to to say hey and me too terrence what was it like what was um your first the first challenges that you started to realize that you were having with your own mental health um this was around, I would say, like junior high, high school time. Uh, and this is when a lot of my mom's time was dedicated to my brother. My parents were still going through their divorce process. And 
yeah, those were some dark times for me because I felt really alone mm-hmm. uh, because no one talked to me about, oh, this is what's happening in your family. It is chaotic and here's help for you. Like no one, no one talked to me about it. So I kind of had to, in a sense, kind of go through this, that dark time on my own. And I would say right. that was my first time that I really like experienced it. Um, yeah. Do, do you mean like, like totally on your own too? Like where you, you weren't, you weren't talking to any friends and, and definitely not family at that time or. I had, I had friends, but I didn't know how to express what I was experiencing. Right. And no family. And because in a Chinese family, we don't talk about mental health. So no one told me, it's like, Oh, what your experience is depression. Yeah. Uh, so no one talked to me about it. So really all I did was all I remember was like, yeah, being in my room in the basement in the dark, a lot of the times. And I had to just kind of like come out of it like on my own um did you know any help did you did you did you have a a, an awareness that that it was that you were going through a depression or was it just something in hindsight that that you know you recognize the the patterns and the behavior and go oh wow i was i was depressed it's in hindsight because in that moment i had no words to explain it i couldn't express it i didn't know how to express it i didn't know how to ask for help at that time Mm -hmm. so yeah it's really in reflection that then i recognized oh wow that was what I experienced. I, I'd love to dive into the types of supports that exist out there for caregivers. I know that uh, one of, of which that you've uh, you've mentioned in uh, in the show notes is is Siblings Canada. Um, what what like what what do supports look like for people like yourself who are are giving care to a family member or a loved one? Mm. So, for s- siblings specifically, yeah, sure, so- sure. Yeah, so for siblings specifically, there are organizations like Siblings Canada, which provides things like an online kind of peer-to-peer support. Uh, they also provide different like programming and um, kind of like weekly calls and things like that for siblings. Um, great organization. Like that was probably the first time I found out that, wow, there's like sibling like caregiver support. Because before then, I didn't even know that existed. I'd say beyond just like sibling caregiver support, there are other organizations out there. So I'm based in Ontario. Uh, so there are organizations like the Ontario Caregivers Association. Um, Circle of Care is, is like a nonprofit charitable organization in Ontario that also provides different support for caregivers. Um, like the psychotherapy service that I received was actually specific to caregivers and actually specific to like uh, caregivers to like Chinese seniors. So there's yeah. actually in Ontario or in Toronto, we're very lucky that there's a wide range of organizations out there that provide support services to caregivers, uh, regardless of at which stage we're at and who we're caring for. Mm. So it could be as specific as caring for a Chinese senior all the way to care for a sibling. Um, and these services could include things like psychotherapy services. It could be like support groups. Um, some organizations even provide like massage therapy services for caregivers. Oh, oh wow. Um, and I would say there's also things like respite care services. Um, for example, in Ontario, we have something called the Ontario Health, Health Teams that then provide services to our loved ones who are receiving care. But then they also ask uh, the caregivers, what kind of support that we would need. Hmm. And so there's some instances that they would provide us. And I've gone through it too, where they provided me with like a mental health worker. Um, and they'll also ask, do we need like respite care services so that we get some time off ourselves mm. too? Mm-hmm. Uh, so there are a wide range of these type of services for caregivers. But I think the key is recognizing when to ask for help. Yeah, yeah. Because I I find that, and I've seen this in myself, I've seen it with my mom and her partner when they were caring for my brother, is that we feel like we could do everything on our own. And then that's when I've experienced burnout. I've seen my mom experience burnout. So I think it's also recognizing when to ask for all this help Mm. because it's out there and it does take some kind of like navigating to like seek out these help because it's not all in a central place. Yeah. so I think part of it is awareness, recognizing that it's okay to ask for help, and then now going up to like seek out all these like support services for yeah. us as caregivers. Mm-hmm. Isn't it the hardest thing in the world 
to recognize when you need to ask for help. It takes a yeah, it takes a wild amount of self awareness. It's like it's just because it's because even because even like it's probably the most important thing to just be like amplifying like crazy because even when it's even when it's talked about and you've been told when you should ask for help the awareness that it that you uh, that of going oh shit this is the time like it's so hard honestly i was going to challenge you on that and say like it's not hard to recognize if you're going to therapy <laughs> it, that like that's the point like this is the whole point in going to therapy is like and i realize again like the caveat to every time i, I don't even conversation mean- is like is that it's not accessible to everybody i understand that but like to it you're way more likely to recognize that you need help when you're when you're constantly evaluating and having a conversation about your mental health i agree i, I agree with you but i, I even mean like from the like the really like life important stuff like your mental health but all the way from that to like the simplest things that you do on a day-to-day basis that are just like that that are just uh like me working on this house that you know of going of going when should i raise my hand and go i need my dad to come over and help me with this thing like even like it's simple shit like that. I, I is would so say, challenging. And, and I would say, and I know like not because it's so to, like, easy to say I can do it by myself. But yes, but I think also when you go to therapy, even in moments that are trivial like that, I find that those are the moments where therapy is the most beneficial because then you start to like you start to ask yourself questions like, why do I feel like I have to do this on my own in this moment when it's causing me this stress? And so like I start to notice now like when am I feeling stressed in situations that aren't, it's not like the type of stress that you feel like when you feel overwhelmed and anxious, but just like you're reacting in a way that you don't like Mm -hmm. about a situation to that point, Brian, you start to realize that. And then you go, okay, well, how can I handle this differently? Yeah. I think there's other, there's, there's folks out there too, though, that even in moments when they know they need help, there's still this struggle to like Mm -hmm. take that step to ask for it or take it because Uh, For whatever reason. And, you know, one of the reasons that just like pops up in my mind is like, you don't want to be a burden on somebody else. Like that's Mm -hmm. like for myself, like that's one of the biggest ones for me. It's like, I Mm -hmm. fucking know I need help with this thing. And I know that if I if I asked for it, it would be easier. But because whatever's going through my mind, it's like preventing me from taking that step. And I know what you're going to say, Brian, but if you talk no, to a no, therapist, no, like no, you, gonna, you'll learn I wasn't going to say, it, I was going to say, what I was going to say to that is, is that, that hurdle is, as well. Is that, oh, awareness, like Terrence was saying, awareness is the first step. Knowing where to go for help is not always the easiest. Yeah. Like I acknowledge that. Like yeah. it's, it's hard yeah. to know where, dude, like I've been trying to see a doctor about my ADHD for like nine months now. And I even know where to go and can't fucking do it, but I'm aware of it. That that at least helps Dude, me in these you situations. You sent me that video. The other, you sent us but, that video the other day, that ADHD video. And the I ADHD just, simulator. The, it's so accurate for me. Dude. And I just responded, "Dude, if that's your life, you need pills." Terrence, I just want to bring this back here, uh, uh, Terrence. I'm, I, you know, we we've been talking a lot about about uh, what it means to be a caregiver and, you know, and supports and, and your experience in, in dealing with uh, being a caregiver as, as a youth. But um, I, would, I would love to get into the, the specifics of it, like today for yourself, like what does it, what does it actually mean for you to be a caregiver to your brother? Like what, what on a day-to-day basis, like what are the things that you are doing to show up for your brother to support him? So now. I would say it's shifted a bit since our mom like got her diagnosis of cancer and then dying last year. So it's kind of evolved over time. Mm. Um, But my primary role has been more of the advocate and navigating because kind of like what Brian, you said, like, you know where to go, but it's still hard to get something. So for me, my advocacy has focused more on the healthcare navigation and getting the services that my brother needs. Mm. Uh, Whereas our mom and her partner had been really good in the day-to-day kind of like the caregiving, ensuring like, oh, the the household's running and my brother gets what he needs on a day-to-day basis. And my focus had always been more on, okay, what does my brother need in terms of his care plan? And then how do we get those services for him? 
and then really advocating because there's so many organizations that don't talk to each other. Uh, so I need to go talk to coordinator A and then coordinator B and then coordinator C and then coordinate all the services from, from our brother, like depending on what type of needs that he has. Mm-hmm. So I would say even now, uh, post our mom's death, that has been my biggest focus. Mm. Um, yeah. Dude, I feel like that should be a job at the hospital. Yeah. And, and yeah. you know, to the credit of social workers, I know that social workers do yeah. a, lo- a lot of that. Um, but also, like like you you said it, um, a lot of those organizations don't talk or interface with one another. So, um, like, having an, a personal advocate for your healthcare journey it would be such an incredibly valuable um job but oftentimes it's this is what Mm. the i mean it is what the caregiver is right it's like a project like a project (laughs) manager like if you've if you've ever fucking built if you ever built a building it's like a it's there's like a thousand people that have no interaction with each other that that you need to try and figure out i've never built a building and then and then and then realizing (laughs) like realizing that people who live with uh chronic illnesses and conditions are in that i mean and and it's and it's a it's a minefield and realizing that people who are, who have chronic illnesses and conditions are in that their whole life they're always they're always living in a in a situation where they need to be connecting and managing people and organizations to get what they need on on an, on an ongoing chronic mm-hmm. basis along with their yeah, chronic yeah. issue Are you tired of hearing the same old wellness advice? It's time to dig deeper and listen to America Dissected from Crooked Media, the podcast that's cutting into the science, culture, and policy that shapes our health. From doctors fighting for their rights to the surprising truths about sunscreen, America Dissected dives deep into the state of health. Tune in every Tuesday for new episodes of America Dissected, available on all major podcast platforms. Terrence, what, what would you say is the, you know, what are some of the biggest things that you've learned in being a caregiver for your brother? I would say um, being open and honest with each other. Like, so the communication, mm-hmm. I think that is a big part um, because when my brother was going through some of his, his health challenges, uh, as a family, we have to like just openly and honestly talk about like what's going on and being able to say like, okay, so what, what help does my brother need? And are we all on the same page? And if we're not, how do we ensure that things get done? So he gets what he needs. Mm. So I'd say being able to communicate openly is one of the biggest things I've learned and that I continue to practice because even now, I still have to have to have like open conversation with my brother and honest conversation with my brother and ensuring that he gets the care he needs mm. and that I don't burn out as a, as like a brother um, and an advocate for him. Uh, so I would say that's the, the first one. Um, I, I wanted to ask before you go into the second one, when you, yeah. when you talk about um, burnout and mm. as a caregiver, like recognizing that you're getting close to burnout what does that conversation look like with, in your case, your brother, um, and even even your mom when you were um, helping to care for her? Like, what are the what is that conversation like? How do you approach that? Because like, I, I feel like there's this feeling that like you want to again put that person before you, but then also you're recognizing that you can't show up the best in that relationship unless you take care of yourself. Um, how do you bring how do you bring that up and let them know? Well. Last year when I experienced burnout, it wasn't very, it wasn't like a great, it's not a great example because what burnout looked like for me was I started getting frustrated. Mm. So then in my frustration, I would then project my frustration onto my family. Yeah. But then those uh, were signs for me. So then what I ended up doing was then I approached the like um, care coordinator and I, I literally in my email just said white flag, like I'm, I'm experiencing burnout symptoms help. And then immediately 
the next day they like called the care team together and had a meeting with me and said, okay, like emergency meeting, what can we do to help you like in this incident? So, <laughs> so I'd say the way I addressed my family wasn't probably the best way, but at least I recognized the symptoms and then I was able to like ask for help from like the, the, the care team mm. uh, to help me, even though they're there to support my mom and my brother, but they're, they were also there to support me. So I was able to ask for help. Were, were you surprised at like how they were able to show up in that, in that situation and, and support you? I imagine like, like talking about how difficult it is to ask for help. Sometimes you, you oftentimes, I feel like default to imagining that like, you know, everybody else is also doing their best. So like, therefore I can't ask for help because you know, what is anybody else going to do to help alleviate that? Um, when, like when you, when you actually said like, Hey, I, you know, I'm, I'm about to burn out and, and they showed up like, what did, did that surprise you the way that, that other people w- were able to, you know, come to your support in that situation? Um, I think maybe the surprise was like how quickly they responded. Mm. Uh, I wasn't too surprised because I've been kind of working with them uh, already for at that time, maybe for a good six months. Mm. Uh, in ensuring that our mom got the care that she needed. So already we've been having conversations around like how to better support me as a caregiver. Uh, so I was just more surprised and like, oh, wow, like within almost like 12 hours, they responded and they said, okay, let's talk. Yeah. Like, so for me, it's more the speed that I was more surprised, not the we're, we're here to do anything to like alleviate whatever stress and pressure that you have. Mm-hmm. What was the uh, the second thing that that you had learned from uh, being your brother's caregiver? Um, I would say uh, the the other one was asking for help. Mm. <laughs> so mm-hmm. we talked a lot mm-hmm. about that. So yeah. I would say that's the second thing around just being able to ask for help. Uh, I would say the the third thing um, would be at least for me, it was around getting like additional help for myself. Uh, So I did mention like getting therapy support and stuff. And prior to that, I even got support through like men's support groups um, and other like mastermind type groups and accountability partner groups and stuff like that, that really like helped me in terms of having some like consistency in my life, uh, even when I was going through this caregiving process. so I'd say that's another thing that really helped me uh, and what I learned uh, from caring for my brother. Mm. Um, and then the last part is recognizing that I'm not just my brother's caregiver. I am also his brother. Mm. And I think that part was something that I've kind of grappled with over the years too. It's like, uh, am I his brother? Am I his like father figure just because our parents are divorced? So you know, there's all these like, different identities, but in the end, for me, what I learned over the, especially over the last like year and a bit, like my intention and what's important to me is that I'm also my brother's brother. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm curious to know, I, you know, I'd love to talk about the, the transition into caring for your mother when, when she got sick. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, specifically, what did that look like for you? But also before we get into that, do, do you feel like, you know, being a caregiver for your brother for all of those years sort of set you up for success when it came to being there for your mother when, when she got diagnosed with cancer? Yeah, like the skill set that I've or the caregiving muscle <laughs> that I've developed over the years for my brother and being an <laughs> advocate, yeah, really prepared me Uh to help my mom and to be my mom's advocate. Um, Cause I remember getting the call from her to tell me like, oh, I've been diagnosed with like stage four lung cancer. Like I still remember that moment. And from there, I really like knew what I needed to do yeah. uh, to not only support our mom in her appointments, but then to like rally our, our family, our friends, and also getting the services that she needed to ensure that she's cared for. And it was only because of the experience I had in care for my brother that I was able to apply all that experience to ensure our mom got the care that she needed mm. and to be able to be surrounded by 
the people that she cared about and that cared for her. When, when, um, like in talking about the way that the way that you care for your brother, which, which lent itself to the way that you were able to care for your mother. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is sort of on the same track as that, but also kind of, um, um, uh, going back to a cultural aspect that I'm wondering mm-hmm. if it did play a role. Um, mm-hmm. I've gotten the sense, I've gotten the sense as I've traveled through, the, through the years that Asian and South Asian cultures have, a have, have a, have a different, have a different perspective on taking care of, uh, of their elders in, in, in a way that, in a way that I, that I don't feel as much that, that it's not as embedded, uh, here. And it's, it's, it's a different sort of mentality. Um, so I guess part A of that is, is, do you feel that that was, that that was sort of embedded in your, your parents and, and how, you know, they grew up in, um, in Hong Kong and China and was that sort of a part of your upbringing and did that end up lent? And if so, did it end up lending itself into just like the way that, that, that you approach all of the, all of the, the these, these angles of caregiving in your life? Yeah. Cause um, in the Asian culture, the expectation of families is that the oldest son needs to take care of the parents and the family. So me being the oldest son, there had been already this kind of expectation, mm-hmm. even though sometimes it's not explicit. Sometimes it's kind of passive, mm-hmm. passively kind of programmed into us, but that has always been there. Um, and even like when our mom got her diagnosis, there would be family and friends that would kind of say to me, it's like, Oh, like make sure to take care of your mom. Right. Like you're like, you have to do more for your mom. Like that kind of, that's that kind of programming and language. Um, so there is that kind of expectation even though our mom never pushed that onto me, uh, but there was this inherent trust in me. Um, Like even when she got her diagnosis, she's like, I would rather have you sit in the appointments with me than my partner. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think part of that is because she saw how much I advocated for my brother and that I was able to navigate things that she had this like trust in me to ensure that she was taken care of. so yeah, culturally speaking, there is that expectation on the oldest son. And I, I would say the other cultural aspect that I experienced when our mom got the diagnosis too was uh, because her partner is kind of old school from an older generation of Chinese, uh, there's this also inherent unwillingness to tell other people about it. Mm-hmm. So I had to also grapple with like, no, like we have to tell our family and friends because our mom needs the support and love from our family right. and friends. And that like one person alone can't like help her. Mm -hmm. And that was like a struggle for me too, to like need to convince him to say like, actually, like we actually need to work together. Did you actually have to have like conversations with him about that? Oh yeah. 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 We had to have a family meeting um, about it and to really talk about like, and our disagreements around it. And in the end, we didn't still didn't see eye to eye. Uh, even though we had to have this like difficult conversation. So in the end, I had to like just be my mom's advocate and do what I felt right. Yeah. Um, even though we didn't, my my mom's partner and I didn't see eye to eye in how to handle her care. Yeah. Um, and obviously we see, you know, we're 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 definitely looking at that situation more through the lens that you are because of obviously what we do and um we see a lot of value in that. But I mean, especially with something like a can't like like a cancer diagnosis, which is often framed as either a journey or a battle. And, you know, whether it, whether, whether it, whether it has any impact on um, the actual like physical outcome of someone's experience with cancer, their mental, you know, having love and support, knowing that that is there and present from other people is integral, if not in their actual physical outcome, at least in their quality of life while they are going through that experience. Totally. Yeah. Big time, big time. Yeah. What would you say is the biggest thing that you learned from being your mother's caregiver? Mm. I would say um, allowing other people, and when I say other people, other family, friends, and colleagues to be part of her life during that time. And when I say that, like the, the biggest example that I could give you is um, after our mom died, uh, her boss came to visit me and uh, she said, thank you for allowing us to like be part of your mom's like, like last like few months. 
and to be able to like be there with her and spend time with her and to like celebrate her mm. um because my mom worked with this organization for like 30 years so for for them she's a family member yeah mm-hmm. and so for them to be able to be part of her like like cancer uh kind of like process was tremendous for them yeah um, yeah and so that was my biggest lesson that during someone's like dying process, uh, of course, the person who's dying needs to be okay with it. And I did plan with our mom and like talk to her about it. And she wanted her loved ones to be like around her, including her colleagues. So as her son and her advocate, I made sure that happened and to allow the time and space for all the people that she cared about and all the people that cared about her to like be around her and surround her yeah. uh, during that's, that time. That's really amazing. I think of uh, our friend Brandon and how like appreciative I was of, of his, his family mm-hmm. allowing us to be part of his dying process um, mm. because of like the, just the ability to be with him and like be like surround <laughs> him with that love, but also yeah. for like, I mean, for the grieving process for us, like being able to be there and like say goodbye and yeah. having that part was, yeah. was so Vitally important. Like, and so us valuable. appreciative of them to, yeah. to recognize what we were to Brandon, mm-hmm. even though mm-hmm. we weren't a part of his life for nearly as long as they were, as yeah. they were. And yeah. a lot of the people that yeah. Brandon, you know, grew up with and was yeah. friends with. I, I am, I am curious too, but like speaking of the, the, that dying process and, and the, and the open, sort of conversation that you had with your mom. I, my mom had uh, cancer a few years ago and um, recently my brother was, was home visiting and we had dinner together and, and my brother and I talked to my mom at length about um, you know, sort of what would happen when she, when she dies. Mm-hmm. And um, it's interesting because like, I I feel like it's not a common conversation to have, but like the, the, the conversation that we were having, we were talking about like, how like it's not it shouldn't be weird to talk to your parents about their death because you should hope they die before you and like they certainly do right like yeah Yeah. i mean a hundred percent and so like having the conversation wasn't it was it was it was fairly like natural and and normal for us to do that Mm -hmm. and it felt good to like hear my mom talk about what she wanted to happen when she was gone but it was the first time that i thought about um, at length or in detail about um, like how we would go about managing her estate when she's mm. when she's gone, and um, by nature of like my brother traveling a lot, um, I'm the sort of the the person in point of like like overseeing the affairs and and yep. um, what's it called the the like executor of of the yep, will the I guess estate. or something. So <clears throat> so. So I was thinking like about, you know, being responsible for making those decisions and like knowing what to do when she's gone, but also trying to balance that with like grieving the fact that mm-hmm. she's gone. Mm. Like how, like what, what was that process for uh, like for you and in, in sort of balancing the, like the grieving process, but also the like, you know, the administrative side of like, of, of dealing with the mm. death of, of your, your mother. So one, I just want to say, I want to acknowledge you and your brother for like being able to even have this conversation with, with your mom, because I know a lot of parents want to have these conversations, or I wouldn't say a lot, but there are parents who want to have these conversations, but then their children are wanting to shy away because it's uncomfortable. Yeah, right. Oh yeah. no, that's going to be a long time. That's going to be way yeah, 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 down yeah, the road. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Or vice versa. Some children want to have it, but then the parents shy away. So yeah. I want to acknowledge you and, mm. and also your mom for being open. Um, yeah, thanks. For, for, for my experience, I would say what really helped was, um, so our mom, when she got her diagnosis, she's like, oh, I need to update my will. So she got that done. The other thing, having been trained as a end-of-life care doula, um, one thing that we're taught that is kind of a critical thing to work on with clients, even though I'm not a practicing doula, is uh, something called the advanced care plan. Mm-hmm. So this is kind of like complementary to a will because in the advanced care plan, it talks more about things like um, if all of a sudden I'm unable to speak and advocate for myself or like healthcare medical decisions, what are the things that are important to me? Mm. So I was able to sit down with my mom and say, oh, okay, so like, what are all these things? 
And there are templates, I could share them with you. One, one set of cards I like to use is called the Go Wish cards. And this helped me facilitate the conversation with my mom mm. to talk about things like what's important to her, like in, that, in those times and in the moments close to death, what are important. And then for us to kind of plan all these things out. So then in the moment when she was actively dying and all these emotions like came up for me, I didn't have to think about what my mom or what I wanted for her mom, like my mom. Because yeah. in that moment, I just pulled up the document and I said, okay, mom, one, one of these yeah. things, I'm going to execute now as she's dying. And then post-death, I just kind of followed the will's execution. Um, but in the moment, the advanced care plan really helped me because yeah. in the moment, there's so many emotions, so many people, yeah, like mm-hmm. so many things happening, but I'm like, no, I'm just going to follow what my mom yeah. told me yeah. in the plan that we did together. And then and you don't have was, to make the the decisions like aren't you don't have to yeah. bear the weight of like yeah. oh did I fucking do the right thing or not because yeah. it's exactly their decision yeah. exactly and I think that's the key with advanced care plans and if any of our parents are willing to do it with us I think the gift is actually they're giving to us and mm. actually that's the way I kind of pitch it to my mom I'm like if we do this it's actually not going to burden me it's actually going to relieve the stress and pressure off of me. Mm. because once she heard that she's like okay i'm open to doing it now yeah um, where did you, where did you do your death doula training uh there's there's a couple of places but the mm-hmm. one i did it was out in um uh there's a college out in bc yeah uh that provides end-of-life care doula training yeah mm-hmm. yeah it's something that i i was uh heavily contemplating doing next year and it's uh, worth doing yeah 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 definitely yeah. I, I was I, 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 were you gonna move to so, but just I'm just realizing I'm realizing like as we're having this conversation that, and I know that uh, my daughter is now my version of Brian talking about therapy. This <clears throat> um, <laughs> is the thing that I bring up in some regard on every episode. That's okay. Um, it's better than biking. Yeah, you're right. It is. <laughs> I mean, yeah, everybody seems to react way more favorably to the daughter thing. Um, I'm realizing as we're having this conversation, like how. I'm noticing for the first time, even though now in hindsight, I can tell that I've had this thought many times, but maybe just didn't recognize it before, but just like how differently I feel about mortality now that I, now that she's here and like that there is a, um, and it it popped up when we were talking about the whole thing of like, yeah, your parents want you to, they want to, they want to die before you do, because of course, I mean, and, and that's probably the, that's the, it's the first time in my life I've actually thought like I want to be outlived by anything. I want to die before my dog dies. And yeah, right. Yeah, there you <laughs> good go. luck. Yeah. Good, yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Good luck, Brian. Sorry. Sorry to burst your bubble there. But like, it's really changed. It's really kind of like added. I was, I, I, on most days I was fairly, uh, fairly comfortable with the idea of dying anyway. Um, not fully, obviously there's days where it's not as, uh, it's not as good. Um, but now there's like, there's almost like this added layer of like comfort that I have a, a child that I, that I, uh, that your seed will live on. Yeah. It's a weird, it's like a (laughs) weird primal biological thing going on in my body right now where I'm going, but you're here. So it's kind of like I'm here. It's so weird. I'm like having that experience right now. And it's almost like, I feel like when I'm dead, I won't actually be dead. Yeah. Well, you need, you know, like just in case anything happens, you need to like back that up by like, make sure that you make more kids. So <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. I just need to like try and really spread it as like, yeah. Spread your seed. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and also have your will and advanced care plan. In place yes. So then yes. your daughter is taken care of a hundred percent. Yeah. And, 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 and that really snuck up for me as well as going, Oh, she's four months old. It's probably four months. I'm probably, I'm, I'm at least four months late on an advanced care plan. <laughs> and you should get uh, life insurance. Yeah. Yeah. God damn it. Oh, I, maybe I think I do have life insurance actually. I'm not, I'd have to double check on that. <laughs> Terrence, uh, I know that you, uh, outside of just being a caregiver for your, your family, um, mm-hmm. you, you also do a lot of work, uh, in, in the realm of, of, of caregiving. Um, uh, can we talk a little bit about uh, Braze Mobility? What's what's Braze Mobility all about? What's your role there? And uh, and give us a little bit of insight into the cool, uh, the cool uh, product, I guess that that's coming out of Braze Mobility. Yeah, sure. So Braze Mobility, 
Um, our company has developed the first uh, blind spot sensors for wheelchairs. So think of like Tesla with their sensors. Mm. Uh, we've taken the same type of sensors, but redesigned it for wheelchairs. Um, and this company was actually founded by a friend of mine who uh, is a PhD. Her name is Dr. Pooja Vishwanathan, and she's a PhD who studied smart wheelchair technology. And I was very lucky to have met her um, probably like six, seven years ago when my brother and I, we were running our not-for-profit, helping people with disabilities around employment. And yeah, met her six years ago as she was starting building this company. And um, so I'm fortunate to have joined her in our like pursuit of ensuring that wheelchair users all around the world can gain a greater spatial awareness um, when using wheelchairs or any mobility like equipment, like a wheelchair, like a scooter, is kind of like driving a car. Wheelchair users also experience blind spots. Mm. So even having a sensor technology to let the user know that, oh, there's an obstacle in a way and and then so that the user and the driver could make a decision on like, oh, I'm not going to like crash into the wall, for example, mm-hmm. is a huge benefit. Uh, something that is overlooked in, in the wheelchair industry. And we're hoping to change that. And we're hoping to that soon enough or in the future that all wheelchairs would have this sensor technology built in. That's really interesting. I, I, I didn't think of the importance of that until you started talking about it, especially for people um, who, you know, if, if they, they have like impaired neck mobility, mm-hmm. then mm-hmm. I imagine it's, it's even more difficult to see your blind spots. So yeah. the fact that, that you're making that technology, that's awesome. Oh, big time. Like even as all of you are sitting in your chair, just try to look behind you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah. Like even just doing that motion, you already have blind spots and we don't have neck mobility challenges or anything. So, right. Yeah. yeah. And, and especially in, uh, as, as, um, you know, cities become more densely populated and you just have, you just have, you know, crazy population density and you're navigating, uh, you might be, na- I mean, navigating Toronto. Uh, I mean, Toronto has its own inherent disability, uh, accessibility issues mm-hmm. regardless of, you know, the person that's using a wheelchair and trying to navigate it, just getting into places is its own, is its own challenge, yeah. but just navigating in your, it really st- sticks out to me in terms of like navigating, especially like a busy city where you're, you know, you could be going down a street surrounded by hundreds of people all the time. And how are you, you know, knowing, knowing what's around you, you yeah. know, at all times could be a really big challenge. Um, yeah. Tell us a bit about the, uh, the book that you co-authored, uh, Bold Spirit Caring for the Dying. Yeah, sure. Um, so the book, (coughs) it was a collect, it's a collection of different caregivers. Some are family caregivers and others are professional nurses and doulas. Uh, and it's one story of ours, of our experience in care for someone that's dying. Um, so in it, it includes even like tips and tricks and things that we learned um, even things that we talked about here around like what support that we got as someone who was caring for someone that was dying, what were some of the resources and what are some of the lessons that we learned in it. Mm. Um, so yeah, so I, I'm a co-author and I was able to share one of my stories and my experience of uh, learning the lessons I learned in supporting my grandfather in his uh, dying process and then how I took those lessons and applied it to supporting my brother. Um, so that's the uh, book chapter uh, that I wrote. Mm, cool. So yeah, you could you could find that book on Amazon.ca, and uh, I think it's there's like a paperback version and also a Kindle version. Amazing, cool. Terrence, uh, it, it's been a real treat to be able to uh, meet you and talk to you about uh, about life as a caregiver. Um, uh, thank you for this. This has been a real treat, and thanks for taking time out of your schedule to hang out with us. Mm-hmm. Hey, I appreciate you. Uh, yeah, having me and. Uh, it's a blast chatting with all of you and meeting all of you. And yeah, I look forward to listening to more of your episodes and perhaps uh, being able to hang out maybe the next time uh, you guys come to town or next time I come out to. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, dude. Yeah, for yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. We need to be in Toronto sooner than we are going to be there. We need to, <laughs> yeah. it needs to be sooner than it will be. That's right. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, dude.
that is it for this week's edition of Routine Checkup. Thank you so much for tuning in, folks. It means the world to us. And if you'd like to continue listening to the podcast, you can do that right here on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. And of course, if you want to support the podcast further, you can leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, or you can simply rate the podcast on your Spotify mobile app. And uh, even better than that, why don't you tell someone that you know, tell someone that you love, tell someone that you don't know, that you listen to Sick Boy Podcast and recommend it to them because we always love those extra ears. The podcast is produced and hosted by myself, Jeremy Saunders, Brian Stever, and Taylor McGilvery. The podcast is managed by Jeffrey Lonis at Talent Bureau. The theme music for today's episode comes from Rich O'Coin. Thanks again, folks. Hope you enjoyed it, and we'll be back next week. That's it for now. My name is Jeremy, and this is Sick Boy. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.